So my name is Ben McFarlane, I'm a law tutor at Trinity College in Oxford and I'll be doing the example interview that you're about to see. But before you look at that, there are sort of three introductory points that I want to make about it. And the first point is that this isn't a model interview. So that means both from the point of view of the style of the interview and also of the performance of the interviewee, it's not meant to be a model interview that you know, you should be trying to necessarily replicate if, if you are interviewed for an undergraduate law place at Oxford University. So first, from the point of view of the interviewer, I mean, the colleges in Oxford are responsible for the precise form and content of the interview. I mean, all the colleges are looking for the same things, you know, we're all looking for the, the same criteria, and obviously we, we operate broadly similar interviews, but the precise form and content can vary slightly from college to college. And second, from the point of view of the interviewee, you know, we haven't done the interview yet, we don't know how it's going to go. It's an Oxford student who'll be being the mock interviewee, but she's not, not a law student. And so you shouldn't think that this is a sort of model interview in that sense. It's just to give you an example of what an Oxford interview is like and hopefully to remove some misconceptions that people have about you know, the odd things that happen in an interview and to see that it's just a sort of perfectly normal uh, discussion where we try and uh, assess the candidate's potential. So first, it's only an example interview, not a model interview. Second, the interview is only one part of the admissions process and there's, there are lots of bits of information that we take into account in making admissions decisions. So first, there's the candidate's academic record, their references their LNAT performance, and in particular, in Oxford, the tutors will read and have the LNAT essay that the candidate has written. And the interview is, of course, an important part of the process, but it's only a part of the process. It's not the thing that decides one way or the other necessarily. Finally, just to let you know before the interview what we're looking for, uh, the admissions criteria that we apply and we'll discuss after the interview our first application, you know, the candidate's motivation, their capacity for the sustained work a law degree involves. Second, their reasoning ability, you know, their capacity to distinguish relevant things from irrelevant things, to make fine distinctions, to think carefully, analytically and creatively about a problem. And third, communication, the candidate's ability to express ideas, to understand ideas that are put to them and to respond to and develop their own ideas and then to put those across both orally in the interview and of course in, in writing, particularly in the LNAT essay for example. So it's important to bear in mind that we're not really looking for a right answer in the interview, it's not as though there's necessarily a right answer to go for and obviously the interesting parts of law are often where the answer isn't clear and there's uncertainty and it's about developing an argument from one point of view or the other. Now having said that there are some points of course where there is a clear answer and at those points often in an interview people might start off getting the wrong end of the stick and then in the interview we'll try and help the candidate see that and you know, if in an interview you see that you've got off uh, on the wrong foot then it is important if you see that to be able to say well actually you know I think now that this is perhaps the better way of viewing it so it's important to be able to react and respond to what the the interviewer is saying particularly if it's a sort of almost a factual point or a point where there is a clear answer. Because obviously if it's a discussion of 
uh, an argument where there isn't a clear answer, then sticking to your point of view can be important. But if there's a clear answer one way or the other, and that's been pointed out to you, then it's important there to be able to respond to what the interviewer said and take that on. So finally, before we look at the interview, just remember it isn't a model interview, it's just an example. The interview is only part of the process, and what we're looking for is the candidate's evidence of the candidate's potential to have the application, reasoning ability and communication skills required for the Oxford Law Degree. Hi, my name is Ben McFarlane. If you'd like to come in, and that's Kat Murdoch. Hello, hi, nice to meet you. So if you'd like to take a seat, Anna. So first of all, thank you for coming down for the interview. So you've come down from Manchester, is yeah, that right? Exactly. And you've been staying in college. Yeah, I stayed last night in Gunquad. Really nice oh, Yeah, it's a very nice room, was there. And I was having a look at your uh, form, and you say that one of your interests is that you practice Tai Chi. Yes. So, so I was wondering, I'm not really sure about that, is that a sort of martial art, or is it more...? It's a form of a martial art, but it's also quite... It's, you get some good exercise from it, it's very relaxed, and it's quite meditative as well. Oh, right, so there's a sort of mental side to it, as well as a yeah, physical absolutely. side. And how long have you been doing that now? I'm about six months, because I've been doing it for my Gold Duke of Edinburgh Award. Right. And so do you think that sort of helped you, you know, in your approach to other areas of life as well, or is it mainly just through that form of relaxation? Well, it has a very calming and de-stressful effect, which has certainly helpful around exam times and things like yes. that. Yes, <laughs> and that's very useful, I'm sure we could all do with that <laughs> sometimes. So now I've got uh, a bit of law for us to have a look at in the interview. Now it's important, we're not expecting you to have any prior knowledge of it, we'll just be asking you about the definition on the card and asking you to interpret this rule. So as I say, we're not expecting any prior legal knowledge. So I'll just give you a card to look at. Now that's part of a United Kingdom statute that defines a criminal offence. So take your time to have a look at it and you can keep the card throughout the interview and we'll just ask you some questions about it. Okay, so did you have any questions about it before we start? When it says conveyance, does it mean anything in particular, like a car or...? Yes, well, I mean, that's one of the questions I was going to ask, actually. So, I mean, you, you say car, I think that's probably right. So, in the context of this particular rule, I mean, what sort of thing do you think conveyance might mean here? Yeah, car or any vehicle, motorbike, truck. Yeah, yes. exactly, I think that's right. So, I mean, conveyance can mean different things in different contexts, but uh, as you say here, it can sort of mean car, truck and so on. So, could you think of a sort of factual example where this crime might be committed? Um, theft of a car? Yeah, no, exactly, that's the type of situation where the crime might occur. Okay, so let me give you an example of, you know, a seemingly different situation, and we'll think about whether this offence might have been committed in that case. So let's say we have a defendant who's uh, out, and it begins to rain very heavily, and they don't have an umbrella. So there's an unlocked car at the side of the road and they open the door to the car and stay in that car for half an hour until the rain passes by. Now, going on the definition on this card, do you think it might be possible to say they're guilty of this particular offence? Well, in, in the second sentence it says um, he takes it for his own use. Right. He's using it, but lastly it says drives it or allows himself to be carried in it and it's not following 
that part, so I guess not he couldn't be guilty of this, but maybe breaking into a car. Well, that's true. There might be other offences. Yeah. So if, if we just concentrate on the one on the card. Now, you're saying that it certainly hasn't driven the car, has he? Now, looking at the definition, do you think someone has to drive the car to be guilty of this offence? Well, it says allows himself to be carried in it or on it. So if somebody else was driving, maybe they could be. OK, that's true. That, that might be a possibility. So we've got the possibility of driving or allowing yourself to be carried in or on it. Now, now it might be possible for someone to be guilty of this offence even if they haven't driven and even if they haven't allowed themselves to be carried in or on a car. Um, if they have the consent of um, the owner of the property that, or the other the owner was in it, then no, he wouldn't be guilty. No, that's true. If they have the consent of the owner, then clearly they're not guilty of the offence. So, in this case, the defendant uh, doesn't have the consent of the owner. You know, he's just taken advantage of the unlocked car here. So, if you're trying to prosecute this person, I mean, it, may, it may seem harsh to do so, but if you're trying to prosecute them going on the uh, definition on this card, do you think there's any way you could do that? I would say if he's not driven it and it has to, he has to fulfil each section of this, of this, of this statute, then no, he's not guilty of this. Okay, so looking at the, the first part of the statute, do you think it might be possible, if we're concentrating on that part, to say that you can possibly be guilty without necessarily having satisfied the second part of the statute? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so, so you think it, it may be possible to be guilty if you satisfy only the first part? Well, it depends if, if to prosecute someone they have to be guilty of the whole, the That's whole true. Thing. Yes. then he couldn't be guilty, but he, you could say that for definite that he's taken it for his own use. Okay. Well, let, let's concentrate on that part, this, this question whether he's taken it for his own use. So, in, in what sense, in our example, do you think the defendant has taken the, the car for his own use? Well, in the sense that he's, he's got in the car, preventing the owner of the car entering the car. He, he's in the car, the other person can't use it, he may not have moved it, but by entering the car he's, you know, he's, he's kind of taking the ownership onto himself. Okay, so I think that's a good way of putting it. You might say he's taken something, you know, he's taken ownership or perhaps he's taken control of the car, even if only for a short period. So that's, that's one interpretation, isn't it? We could say he has taken it. Now, if you're trying to defend that person on the interpretation of the word takes, is there a different interpretation of the word takes we could give that means he hasn't taken the car? Well, yeah, takes implies that he's, he's moving it somewhere else and taking it from its original position and it's not been moved. So maybe in that sense of the word, he's not guilty. Yeah, I think that's right. There are two possible interpretations, aren't there, of this word takes here. So could you just summarise what those two different interpretations of takes are in this context? Well, in one, in one sense, the word take could mean taking ownership um, and so taking something from the car. In the other sense, takes means physically moving Right. and he's not moving it anywhere. Okay, so I think that's right there, those two different senses of takes. Now, if you were the judge and you, you were having to decide which sense you know, works better in this particular statute, do you have a preference as to which definition of takes you might go for? Um, well, if I was a judge, I'd probably think he's not caused any harm, he's not caused any damage, um, he just wanted to shelter from the rain. All right, that's true. And he's not moved anywhere, so I'd probably, for the sake of being a nice judge, okay. <laughs> think that... He's not guilty of it. Well, no, that, that can be important when a judge interprets a rule, you know, what they think the right result should be. You know, that can certainly make a difference. And so if, if the judge wants to find in favour of the defendant, then they're going to incline towards that definition of takes. 
Now, is there anything, so, uh, so I certainly agree with that, and do you think there's anything in the statute or, or what this particular rule is about that could help the judge in that conclusion? Nothing jumps out at me, if I'm honest. Um. Okay, well, I suppose one thing is, at the start we were saying about a, a conveyance and what a, what a conveyance means. And why was it that you were thinking that conveyance means things like cars or, or trucks and so on? Because um, it had the word drives in the last sentence. Okay, well, well that, that's true. I mean, that's, that's a good point. And might that word drives help us interpret the word takes? Do you think a judge might be able to make an argument? Oh, so in this sense because the drives implies mobility and moving somewhere, take should be interpreted in the sense that it's being moving instead of just taking ownership. Right, okay, now I think that's a good way of putting it. So could, could you just summarise then what a judge might say, what his, re what his or her reason might be for preferring that particular definition of takes? A judge might think that because the statute had the word, has the word drives in it, which implies mobility and implies moving an object, that the word takes should be interpreted as moving that object somewhere else. Okay, so that could be, as well as the sort of judge's general sympathy, that definition, that way of interpreting the word takes might also help them reach that conclusion that the defendant isn't guilty. Okay, so let's take a, a slightly different example now. Let's say that um, someone has a, a very valuable car uh, that's parked in the street uh, and it's, it's locked up and everything, so that it, it can't just be driven away. But there's someone who wants to steal the car, and what they do is they arrange for a uh, you know truck, towaway truck, to come along, pick up the car, and take that uh, car away to somewhere else. Now, going on the definition of this offence, might they be guilty of this particular offence in that situation for arranging for the towaway truck to come along and move the car? Well, that's difficult, though, because he's not he's not driving it, he's not in it or being carried in it. That's true. So. In that sense, he's, he's not guilty of this. Okay, so certainly if the prosecution had to prove that second part of the statute, if they had to show that he'd driven the car or allowed himself to be driven, that then he, would be, he couldn't be guilty of this offence. Now, might it be possible, looking at the definition on the card, do you think, to say that the defendant can be guilty nonetheless? Well, he is taking it for his, his use or another's use. Okay, that's true. So... Going through the definition, we could say, well, the person's guilty of offence if, you know, he takes the car for his own use, which seems to have happened here. And so do you think, once the, once the prosecution approved that, do you think the prosecution could stop and say, well, we've, we've shown that he took it without consent or without lawful authority, and that's enough? Well, I would hope so, because there's certainly been a crime committed. Well, that's true. I mean... The, so, I mean, it's a, in contrast to the other example, this yeah. might be a case where the judge actually does want to find the defendant guilty of this offence. So, look, looking at the sort of precise wording here and, and the way that the first part and the second part are linked together, do you think there's any way that the judge could justify finding the defendant guilty? Well, in the sense that we mentioned before, the word taking implies moving because yes. 
the word driving implies moving it. Um, so I think, yes, he could, he could argue that. So I think you're right, and the definition of takes that we were discussing before then, we could say the defendant's taken the car. So, I mean, for example, let's say that Parliament, when they drafted this statute, if they wanted to make clear that the defendant had to be guilty of both the first part of the statute and the second part of the statute, then you know they might have linked those two parts together by saying you're guilty of an offence if you take the car, uh, if you take any conveyance for his own or another's use, and also drive it away or uh, allow yourself to be carried in on it. Now, is, is that how the two parts are linked here? Are they, are they linked in that way? Or? Well, it says or, so it implies either one will. Okay, so that, that could be quite important. Cause it, it, so if you're the judge in our example where someone has taken the car away in a tow-away truck and the judge wants to find guilty of this particular offence, might it be possible for the judge to do that? Yes, because he's guilty clearly of the first clause, if not the second. Okay, that's right. And so we agree he's guilty of the first clause and the question then is, is that enough to be guilty, being guilty of the first clause, is that sufficient? And do you think, given what we've discussed, it might perhaps be? Well, given that it says all, so you have to satisfy one of the criteria, and he definitely satisfies the first, then he's guilty of all. Okay, so I think that's right. I think on the wording that there's both that first criteria, and there's the alternative, there's, there's the second one, so it could be either of those two things. Now, if Parliament wanted to do things differently, and to make clear that you had to satisfy both of those two parts to be guilty, what particular word or phrase in the statute do you think they might change? Um, they might change um, or to and. Okay, and, and which particular, I think I think that's right, and which particular or? Oh, you um, take, if he takes any conveyance for his own or another's use and knowingly. Okay, so, so that word or there, after another's use, is obviously quite an important word in yeah. understanding how the statute fits together. No, I, I, think, that, I think that's right. So, that means perhaps that in the first example where the defendant takes shelter in the car, in that, going back to that first example, I mean, why precisely there is it that the defendant isn't guilty when he takes shelter in the car during a rainstorm? Um, because of our interpretation of takes, because he's not taking the car anywhere. Right, so even in that first case, although you only need to be guilty of either the first or the second part, you still think the defendant's not guilty? Well, because of our interpretation of takes. So, whereas in the second example, can, can you just summarise why you think that the defendant is guilty in that second example? Because even though he's not driving it, and so not satisfying the second clause, he is satisfying the first clause, and so by the definition of, you know, or, he is, he is guilty in that, in that sense. And why is it in that second example that the defendant has taken the car? Because he's moving it from one place to another in a different location, his own location where the owner doesn't know, so... Okay, well, let's, let's take a slightly different example. Let's, let's take a third example where, let's say, uh, someone's parked quite close to my car and it's making it very difficult for me to get out. And I see that their car is unlocked and, it, and it's on a hill. So I, I get into their car, I release the handbrake and let their car sort of drift down the hill a little bit. And then, you know, I put the handbrake on and move out of their car and drive off in my car, having given myself that extra bit of space. Now, technically speaking, on, on the definition on this statute, would it be possible to argue I'm guilty of a crime there? Well, I think the problem would be in the part where it says for his own or another's use, and you've taken it not to use it, but just to move it out of your way. Um, so it might be difficult to argue that you could be guilty of this, even though technically you have taken it somewhere. 
Okay, so if you were defending me, you might try to say, well, okay, perhaps he has taken it, but he didn't take it for his own use. Now, what makes you think that I've taken it in this example where I released the handbrake? Um, well, you've not been driving, well, although you've not started the engine, you've certainly been behind the wheel and you've controlled its movements. So in that sense, you have driven it. Okay, that's true. So if we were talking before that the word takes implies some sort of mobility or movement, then we can say in this third example that there has been some movement. So that might be a way to say that the defendant has taken it. Now, if you were trying to defend that person, might it be possible to say that they haven't taken it? I mean, is there any way you could define the word takes so as to exempt this third example? Um, you might say takes has to be... I mean, it'd be hard to put a definition on how far you have to take something to actually take something, but you seem to have only moved it down the road. That's it's not very far. Maybe you could say to take something has to be substantial distance. OK, so you'd want to add, as well as that element of moving, you'd want to add some element of sort of substantial movement. And, and, and like you say, that, that might be quite a difficult definition. I mean, you seemed a bit you know, unhappy about that. I mean, what's your worry about that as a definition? Well, it's so interpretive. And one person's take could mean five centimetres, another person's take could mean a mile or maybe half a mile. It's just all up in the air. No, that's true. I think that's a good point. And in, given that this is a sort of criminal statute, do you think there might be a particular argument for avoiding that sort of more uncertain definition. Yeah, I think maybe that could come from case law instead of written law. Um, that's, that's true. And um, what problem do you think there might be if the definition on the statute seems a bit uncertain? Um, that it could be interpreted in too many different ways and that people would follow it in different ways instead of, like, because the law's meant to be uniform and everyone's meant to apply it in the same way. Okay, no, I, I think that's right. and. So, for example, if we might have a case where two defendants do exactly the same thing, but one judge says they're guilty because they think there's been substantial movement, and another judge says they're not guilty because there hasn't been substantial movement. Um, why might that be a problem for those people to be treated differently? Well, it's not very fair. They've done the same thing. They should get the same punishment or no punishment. OK, so I think there is an argument there that the judge, when interpreting the statute, has to try and interpret it in a fairly clear way and not introduce know, uncertain qualifications that aren't necessarily there. So, you know, bearing that in mind, if you were a judge having to give a definition of takes, what would your sort of summary definition of takes be, do you think? Um, I might add something about intent. Okay. Because in your, in your, in your um, example of just moving the car, you know, so you can get your car out, um, it's not a substantial distance and you don't intend to take it um, too far from where the owner left it. Okay. That might help interpretations of take. That's true. Although, again, I mean, you seem a bit reluctant there. Do you think that term too far might cause you a problem there? Because you're saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, how to define it exactly, I'm really not sure. Um, maybe potentially um, so that the, um, you, c you wouldn't be able to see it from where you originally parked it. Okay, so you're sort of looking at things from the owner's point of view. And, and what, what is it that's making you do that? I mean, I think that, that might be a way of approaching it. So why do you think that's a useful thing to do, to look at it from the owner's point of view? Um, because the owner expects to find it where he left it. And if he'll return to the original place it was parked, if he can still see it, it won't be a problem. If he can't see it, then he'll think it's been well, taken, stolen. So. 
Okay, okay. And, and in a sense, I mean, this particular statute, I mean, who is it there to protect, would you say, if it's protecting someone in particular? The owners of the cars, yeah. Okay, so in that way, it might make sense to interpret what it takes from the perspective of the owner of the car. So, so going back to our first example, where the person takes shelter from the rainstorm, um, if you're trying to interpret the word takes from the perspective of the owner of the car there, what might the owner of the car argue? Um, he's, well, he's, he's taken shelter. He's taking shelter within the car, so he's, he's taking the space, he's occupying the space. So, from the owner's point of view, it might be. Okay, so, no, I think that's right. I mean, that, that's the way that the owner would make the argument if you wanted to see that person convicted of this crime. But would you still want to reject that argument and still say that in that case there isn't a taking? Um, from the perspective of a judge, yeah, yeah, exactly. um, then, yeah, I would say nothing's been taken. And I think the owner's, ownership, sorry, the owner's point of view might be a little biased in that respect and a little too far. So I think that's right. Although we want to take the owner's point of view into account, we obviously can't let that be the only deciding factor. So just to summarise that again, so can you come up with a definition of takes that you think would mean that the defendant isn't guilty in the first case where it takes shelter and isn't guilty in the third example where he releases the handbrake but is guilty in the second example where the car is towed away? Um, he takes the vehicle uh, from its original position to a place where the owner could not expect to find his vehicle. Okay, so that's, that might be quite uh, a useful definition. So, for example, if um, I'm a friend of the owner and I see that, um, you know, that, well, say there's a, a flood warning, for example, and so I think, and I'm a friend of the owner, I think, well, I better move his car to higher ground. And I do that and I move it, you know, somewhere like to his place of work, say, rather than to his home. Then, on your definition, have I taken the car in the sense? Um, yes, but could it not be argued that, in a way, friendship implies he has consent? So the first part, he's not satisfying the first part. Okay, so that's true. So in that example, we might want to bring in other parts of the statutes as well. So I, mean, I think that's a good point, because obviously the word takes is one part of the statutes, but you know we can't solve every problem by simply looking at that word takes. Okay, well I think that's enough for the card. Thanks, so I'll just get the card back. Thank you very much. So, um, did you have any questions at all for us about the application or the college or anything? No, nothing. Okay, well, no, that's fine. I mean, we, we obviously we have to ask, but you don't have to have any questions. And so, I mean, this is just your first interview, and so tomorrow you'll have a, another interview with Nick Barber, who's the other law tutor here. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for coming in. Nice Thank to meet you. you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I'll just show you out. So, um, having done the interview, uh, we thought we'd just give a brief uh, discussion of what happened in the interview. Obviously, we wouldn't do this as part of the proper admissions process with the candidate, but we thought it'd be interesting, given we've got Hannah here, to discuss how it went from her point of view and how I thought it went uh, as an interviewer. So, Hannah, what what your initial impressions? I mean, how, how do you think you did? Um, not so well. I think that I didn't express myself very clearly and um, missing the word or was fairly crucial. I couldn't believe I'd done that, but I guess you read things quickly when you're panicked. Well, that's true. I mean, certainly we recognise that the interview is a very stressful occasion and particularly when you come in initially, you, you might not get off on the right foot. 
so that's why you know later on in the interview I, I came back to that bit and then you you spotted the point there and so so that's you know we try and give you the chance to you know make up for those sort of mistakes that you might have had early on so and, and in fact one of the important things in the interview is that if you do make a mistake early on and it's pointed out then the best thing to do is to you know recognize that and then and then move on with it and you know i think you did that well and it was clear that i think once you got going on other parts of the card you then you know a bit more settled and then you could see that point and it's interesting what you're saying about you felt you didn't express yourself very well actually one of the real strengths of it was that you did express some quite difficult distinctions very clearly and your way of summarising what we discussed and putting forward the different meaning of takes and that, that was very impressive so that, that was a very strong part of the interview I mean did, did you feel you, that you were given enough chance to say what you wanted to say? Yeah absolutely. And I mean did it sort of did it seem more difficult than you expected? Or? Yeah well, when, I, when I read it at first and saw conveyance I was Oh no, what's going on? Don't panic. No, that's true. I mean, that's why we always ask at the start, you know, what do you think conveyance means? And it doesn't matter whether you know it or not. I mean, maybe you just haven't come across the word before. So we, we asked that at the start just to make clear that, you know, whether they knew it or not, that the student, that the candidate knows what it is for the, the forthcoming interview. And, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that it's difficult because obviously what we're trying to do is gauge your potential and we want to see you doing the best that you can. And so obviously, you know, we try and make it as difficult as we think, you know, you're capable of, of dealing with. And therefore often candidates feel as though they're, they're struggling or they're just difficult. But that's actually because they've managed to get to a stage where things are quite difficult and, you know, there isn't a clear answer. And lots of these points we discussed, there is no right or wrong answer. It's a question about your reasoning process. So I think, you know, people often feel that it's confusing or that it hasn't gone very well, whereas in fact they've shown that they can deal with some actually quite difficult points. So, you know, if we just asked sort of simpler questions, then we wouldn't really be testing the potential in that way. And because when, you, when you're a chemistry student in Oxford at the moment, and you're, you're thinking about doing law, I mean, this didn't put you off doing law at all, did it? No, no, found it quite interesting, really. That's good, because, I mean, obviously this is, quite, in a sense, it's an artificial exercise because it's just for the purposes of the interview, but that type of process of looking carefully at, at words and drawing fine distinctions and building up an argument, applying that argument to examples. I mean, that's precisely the sort of thing that, you know, we do in the law degree here, and that, that's partly why we look for those skills in the interview. So the, the sort of criteria that we're testing for in the interview are the candidate's application, which is sort of motivation and capacity for sustained and difficult work. I think in the interview, you know, you actually did quite well because you, you kept following the argument throughout and, you know, you went back to that point about or and you kept the examples in mind, so that was very good. And reasoning ability is the second key thing we're looking for. And there were some very strong points there that you drew some very good distinctions and you put forward a, and developed an argument and you thought about it carefully. And, of course, you know, not seeing the or at the start, I mean, you know, that wasn't ideal, but you, you got there in the end and that's understandable in the interview. In the interview, what we're looking for is potential really and you certainly showed a lot of potential there and the final criterion really is communication and I thought you did that very well I mean it's interesting to hear you say you felt you <laughs> didn't do it so well but I thought you responded very well to what I was saying and you took the points on board and you gave quite considered and careful responses so you know I think all in all that was a very good interview and you know you showed the potential to do the exactly the type of potential that we're looking for. So 
obviously it's very important with interviews that they're only one part of the application, of course, but you know, I think that it went very well. So it, it's interesting that there's that <laughs> discrepancy between what, what you, how you felt and you know, how I felt, but I think that, that often happens in interviews. Okay, well, thanks again uh, for doing Thank it. you.